cannot read the New Testament very carefully before you discover that it is filled with one another's. We are members one of another, in honor preferring one another, being of the same mind one toward another. Let us not judge one another, edify one another, be like-minded one toward another, admonish one another, salute one another. And that's just the book of Romans. I had a much longer list, but I decided I would just cut it short. But if you go throughout the New Testament and study all the one another passages, you'll have enough to keep you busy for a long, long time. And surely we should understand that Christianity is to be lived out in relationship to other believers. But in all the many, many one anothering statements in the Bible, there are more statements about loving one another than any other aspect of our relationship. That you love one another, John 13:34. That you love one another as I have loved you, John 15:12. I command you that you love one another, John 15:17. Owe no man anything but to love one another, Romans 13:8. And abound in love one toward another, 1 Thessalonians 3:2. You are taught of God to love one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. That we should love one another, 1 John 3.11. Love one another as he gave us commandment, 1 John 3.23. Let us love one another for God is of love, 1 John, for love is of God rather, 1 John 4.7. Beloved, we ought to love one another, 1 John 4.11. I beseech you that we love one another, 2 John verse 5. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that Peter says the same thing. In our text for today, in 1 Peter 1.22, as we continue our preaching series through Peter's epistle, we come to these words, chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. We're coming now to the concluding verses of chapter 1, though we're not going to get all of them today. And this is a description of the life that should result from salvation, a description which began in verse 13. We learn that our new life is to be lived out in community. Our new life in Christ requires mutual affection among the brethren. And in this verse before us this morning, there are two emphases that I think you can see. Number one, the enablement to love, and number two, the requirement to love. The enablement to love. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. This is telling us how we have been enabled by the work of God and by our response to the Spirit's work to love one another, to love the brethren. And then the requirement to love, which concludes the verse, love one another fervently with a pure heart. The enablement to love and the requirement to love. First, we take up the enablement to love, and there are at least five aspects of this enabling that I see in our text today. And I realize, number one, that this enablement comes about by divine intervention, something that happened in the past to Peter's readers, has enabled them to love in the present. Since you have purified your souls, or 
maybe a little more literally, having purified your souls. And it is a Greek verb that speaks of past experience with present results. Something happened in the past to enable us to love, as Peter describes for us and then commands for us in this text. That's something, of course, we know to be regeneration, the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. I read earlier in John 13.10 when Christ gathered with his disciples in the upper room before his crucifixion. And Peter, as usual, said the wrong thing and said, Lord, first don't wash my feet at all, and then, okay, if that's necessary, wash me all over, head and hands and all of me. And Jesus said to him in verse 10, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And he's talking now about the work of regeneration in the souls of God's people, that work which the Holy Spirit does and which makes us clean, clean before the judgment bar of God. And so because of regeneration in the past, we have now been enabled to love in the present. But it is not just regeneration, for regeneration is the work of God. We are entirely passive in regeneration, and yet If you'll notice carefully this text, it speaks about something that we do. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. This is our response to the Spirit's work of regeneration. Because of regeneration, we have been enabled to respond in a certain way. This would probably best be called conversion. And we use a lot of these terms sometimes rather rather loosely and generally, without thinking of all the ramifications, but conversion is actually what we do in turning from sin and turning to Christ in response to the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. And what Peter is telling us is that when we were regenerated, when we were born into the family of God by the work of God's Spirit, that sovereign work of God, the result was that we purified our souls in obeying the truth. And that, too, is something that took place in the past. It took place initially when we first believed. It took place initially right after the Holy Spirit had done that miracle of grace within our souls. And so this is something that we do in response to what he did. This is something that involves the believer's will. We want now to obey him. We want to please him. We want to follow him. And when we do that, what are we doing? We are purifying our souls and obeying the truth. And so this enablement to love is, first of all, as a result of divine intervention, something that God did in the past. But it is secondly, as we have already seen, the believer's continuation. It is something that we do in response to what God has done, but not just what we did initially in response to the work of the Spirit, but something that continues on regularly in our life, from the day that we were born into the family of God right down into the present. Past experience with present results. This is Peter's way, one of his ways of telling us that salvation is not a one-time decision for Christ. It is rather the beginning of an ongoing response to truth. 
Salvation is the beginning of new life and then the outworking of that life throughout our lifetime. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, said the Apostle Paul. And that doesn't mean that we save ourselves in whole or in part. That means that what God has put in, we then work it out. Work it out into the surface of our lives, out into our words and deeds and actions, out as it were into the sunlight where others can see it. We are responding to what God has done by working out in our daily existence that new life of Christ which the Spirit has implanted within us. And so it is the Spirit who regenerates us, who also indwells us, and therefore enables us to continue to respond to truth. He doesn't regenerate us and then leave us alone. What does He do? He regenerates us and comes to dwell within us. And as the regenerated children of God, with God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we are now engaged in a lifetime of responding to truth. Because the indwelling Holy Spirit won't let us stop responding to truth. We sometimes call this sanctification, progressive sanctification. This is the holiness that Peter has already talked about. But as he called, who called you is holy, be you also holy in all your conduct. Well, this is how that works. By the work of the Spirit of Christ in making us alive, and then in that living being dwelling within us, interacting with this new life, He now causes us to continue to respond to truth. And that response is what Peter is talking about here. And so, dear friend, if you claim to have had a salvation experience, but your response to truth has stopped and does not resume, then you must come to understand there evidently has been no regeneration. There evidently is no indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. You need to go back to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And so, this enabling is by divine intervention, something that happened in the past. It is by the believer's continuation, something that is going on in the present. It is thirdly by inward transformation, something that changes the inner man. Salvation, we learn, purifies your soul. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, purify your souls. Salvation changes the core of who we are in the inner man. This is the way that Peter put it in that Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 and verse 9. He says, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. The Gentiles' hearts were purified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Jewish believers' hearts were purified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an inward transformation. It does not leave us the same. It's not only that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, but He's dwelling within a new us. Something's different now. Something happened to me. And that's a great change that took place within my soul. 
And this change continues in our inner being. Again, it was not something that happened initially at the time we, we first believed in Christ, but it is something that is ongoing. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. How long does the outward man perish? As long as you live. And when you stop living, that's because it perished too much. It finally got to the end of its perishing. But it's been perishing all the while, right? That outward man. But as much and as long as the outward man is perishing, so the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's an ongoing matter, isn't it? It certainly is. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that you should walk in them. Again, this isn't a one-time thing. This is a continuous thing. This is the way we live. This is the way we walk as believers. And why is that so? Because we're his workmanship. It's because of what he does within us. If it were up to us, it wouldn't be this way. But it's not up to us. He who claimed us by His grace and who indwells us by His Spirit is working within us to make us ever obedient. He is working within us to continue to purify us, to purify us, to purify us. This inward transformation that began at conversion continues on throughout our lifetime. We are growing in Christ-likeness day by day. For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. We are being made like Christ. We are being formed and reformed after the pattern, after the image of Jesus Christ himself. That's an inward transformation that is ongoing. James put it this way in James 4.8, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This purification is both something that God does within us and something that we have a responsibility to address, isn't it? First John 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. The desire and the enablement worked into us by the Holy Spirit of God requires our response, our, action, our activity, our obedience. We must purify ourselves because we have been purified by the work of God's Spirit. And that's exactly what Peter is telling us. Since you have purified your souls. The fourth thing we learn about this divine enabling is that it comes in connection with the Word of God. It is by divine communication. Something impacts us through God's Word. You have purified your souls, how? In obeying the truth. This is how it is done. This is how we make progress in sanctification. This is how our souls are continually purified and renewed and cleansed and, and uh, re-cleansed when we sin and defile ourselves by disobedience to the Lord. There is a, a way for cleansing, and it has to do with the Word of God, the washing of the water of the Word. The Word is necessary in this process. The truth that Peter is talking about, of course, is the Word of God. 
For Jesus told us in John 17, 17, thy, praying to the Father, Thy word is truth. Sanctify them, he said to the Father, through thy truth. That's the way we're sanctified, through the word, the truth of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's what God uses in this process, God's word. But, of course, it must be obeyed. Not just exposure to the Word of God. Our souls don't get purified simply by exposure to the Word of God. Our souls become purified by obeying the truth. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. This also speaks both of our initial response to God's work as well as our ongoing response to it. We can say that faith is obedience to the gospel. Faith is obedience to the gospel. How so? Well, because the gospel calls upon us to acknowledge our sin, our pride, our self-righteousness, our Adamic sinfulness doesn't want to acknowledge that. I'm not a sinner. I'm not bad. Or if I am, I'm not very bad. If you want to talk to somebody who really needs this gospel stuff, you ought to talk to the man down the street. Let me tell you how bad he is. I'm not bad like that. But the gospel calls upon us to acknowledge our sin, our guilt, our depravity, our shame, our utter sinfulness. And we have to either disregard that or we believe it. And a manner, in a manner of speaking, we can say we obey that. We obey the heed, the, the uh, call. We heed the call to acknowledge our sin. We heed the call to recognize our need of Christ. Again, the natural man doesn't feel his need of Christ, does he? That religion stuff is a crutch for people who need it, but I don't need it. I'm strong. I'm independent. I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I don't need religion. Well, when the gospel comes to you in power, you'll recognize your need. You'll begin to cry out to God, Oh, Lord, help me. I need you. And obey. Faith in the gospel, in a sense, is obeying the call of the gospel to acknowledge your guilt and to recognize your need of Christ. Obey what, what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that we need Christ. We need Him desperately. We need to come to Him. We need to embrace Him. We need to believe in Him. And we either obey that call or we disobey that call, don't we? And so the gospel calls upon us to cast ourselves upon the merits and mercy of Christ alone for salvation. We either obey that or disobey that. Now, in a sense, it's nothing we do, is it? Because what we're doing is acknowledging there's nothing we can do. But that goes against our natural man. We want to say there's something I can do. There's something God should recognize within me that's good. God should see this. God should, should uh, recognize that. God should give me credit for this. The gospel says, no, he shouldn't, and no, he won't. Now, will you come to Christ and acknowledge that salvation is entirely by him, what he has done, and by that alone? Will you obey the gospel by believing that there's no way to be saved except through Christ? You see, that's, in a sense, obedience to the gospel. But our 
Gospel obedience doesn't end at the time we first place our faith in Christ and are justified before the judgment bar of God. Faith continues to obey the truth. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, but past experience with present results, since you have purified your souls and are continuing to purify your souls, how? By obeying the truth. That's how it is done. It's a follow-up to what Peter said in verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but purify your souls by obeying the truth as obedient children. This is what obedient children do. Do you know what the word obey means? It means to place under. To place yourself under. To obey the truth, therefore, means to place yourself under the truth. Not only to hear it, that's where it begins, to humbly place yourself under the sound of God's Word. If you're not willing to do that, then you need not expect much grace from God. That's where it begins. Place yourself under, humbly, reverently, quietly, Eagerly, openly, place yourself under the Word of God to hear it. But it means more than that. It means place yourself under its authority. Place yourself under its demands. Place yourself under what it says. Submit to what it says. Apply what it says to your life. Not simply know what it says, but do what it says. Remember Jesus who said, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say unto you? What kind of hypocrisy is that? Lord? Lord? What does Lord mean? Master? Owner? Lord? Lord? But don't do the things I say? What kind of hypocrisy is that? I wonder who God is more pleased with person who only knows a little bit of God's Word. They're not really all that knowledgeable, but they are working very hard at obeying what they know. Or the person who knows a great deal of God's Word, but is very careless, very indifferent toward applying it to their lives. I wonder which one is most pleasing to God. Do you have any guesses in that choice as to which is most pleasing to God? I think you know. So we're made pure by obeying the Word. We must understand it by the help of the Holy Spirit who teaches it to us. We must confess our, our sins, our failures, anything in our life that is at variance with God's Word. We must obey what it says. We must clear our conscience by submitting ourselves and resubmitting ourselves and resubmitting ourselves to the Word of God. Every time it comes to us with fresh power, we acknowledge its truth confess our failure, and resubmit ourselves in obedience to God's Word all over again in that area. It may be something that we knew before and became careless about. It may be something that we didn't understand before, but now it comes to us with new understanding. But whatever it is, we obey it. We place ourselves under it. And in that way, we are continually purifying our souls. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, of course, the Spirit is necessary to apply God's Word to our 
lives in this way. And all of this reminds us once again of the preeminence of God's Word. God's Word is what He uses to convert sinners. God's Word is what He uses to sanctify saints. What's the most important thing that God has left with us? It is the Bible, His Word. What's the most important thing we can gather around as we gather together to worship the Lord? It is the Bible, God's Word. This is the way God shows us His will. This is the way God speaks to our souls. This is the way God shows us our need. This is the way God brings us back to humble submission to Himself again. The Word of God. The Word of truth. But we need to ask God to help us to avoid the... This applies to everybody but me syndrome. You see, I didn't, I didn't read about that one in the psychology book. There's a syndrome for everything, isn't there? Well, here's a syndrome. And it's probably the most prevalent one of all. The this applies to everybody but me syndrome. Some of God's children are experts at knowing how the Word of God applies to their spouse, to their children, to their neighbors, to to uh, other churches, other pastors. I mean, they've, they've got it all. They can tell you how God's Word applies to everybody in all the world except themselves. Somehow they miss that one. Christ had something to say about that. He called that the moat beam problem. Somehow we, we, can, we think we can see real clearly the speck in our brother's eye overlooking this log that's in our own eye. How can we look over this log to see our brother... But somehow we think we can. And what is that? That is, again, the Adamic sinfulness churning within us. And we've got to ask God to rid us of that. That comes easily. That comes naturally. It takes a work of the Spirit of God and our response to His truth to rid ourselves of that kind of attitude. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, but my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in need of confession. Not my brother, but my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in need of new surrender and obedience to your truth. It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord. And we need to pray that God will help us with that. But the fifth aspect of this enabling to love is Holy Spirit-wrought affection, because Peter goes on to say, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. You see, the sincere love of the brethren is all part of this process that comes out of our conversion, out of our response to truth, out of our ongoing response to truth, out of the ongoing purifying of our souls before the Lord when we sin and need fresh purification. It is this love of the brethren, this, this ability to love the brethren that comes out of this this ability to love them unhypocritically. Love of the brethren. The Greek word, and, and every one of you know Greek, because you're going to know this Greek word when I tell you what it is. It's Philadelphia. See there? You do know some Greek. Philadelphia, that's exactly what it is. It comes from two Greek words, phileo, a word for love, which has the idea of fondness, affection, and adelphos, which is the Greek word for brother. And you put them together and you've got brotherly love. Philadelphia, as most of us know from history, 
is or was, I don't think it is much anymore, but it was the city of brotherly love. That's what it was founded to be. And that's the word that Peter uses here. Fondness, affection for our brother. In secular Greek, this was used of the natural brother-sister relationship within the physical family. The kind of normal love that brothers have for brothers and sisters have for sisters who are in the same family. But in the New Testament, this is always used of the family of God. Never used of our natural brothers and sisters, but always used of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, Peter is reminding us that when we were saved, we were placed in God's family. We weren't saved in isolation. We were placed into a family. And now we have a relationship with others who have been placed within the same family. And what we have, among other things, is a God-given ability to love our brothers and sisters unhypocritically. In sincere love of the brethren. That means unhypocritical love of the brethren. Worldly love is usually hypocritical. Does the world have any kind of love? Well, yes, but normally it is, I'll love you for what I can get out of it. Listen to me, young ladies, when that young man says, if you loved me, you would do this, and it's something that's wrong. That's not love. That's selfishness. He doesn't love you, and that's not the way you express your love to him, by sinning with him. Recognize that for what it is. That's a lie of the devil. That's worldly love. That's lust. But worldly love expresses itself in other ways besides lust. The relationships that many people form, the networks, the, the social relationships that many people form, is good business. It's, it's good, good for my, my business. It's good for my social standing. It's good... For my reputation in the community, I can be very loving to others, but usually it's so I can get something in return. It's what I get out of it, which really isn't much love at all. I guess it's better than fighting and wrangling and enmity and hatred, but you see the motive isn't right. And an unconverted person isn't able to have the right motive. He doesn't have that operation of God's spirit in his heart, but God's children do. We have been enabled to do something. We have been enabled to love others unhypocritically, unselfishly. That's the result of the converting work of God's Spirit in our soul. That's the result of the ongoing purification of God's Word in our lives. To love unhypocritically. And where this love is at work, it banishes enmity. And where this love is at work, it addresses the tensions that arise in relationships. This love is a fruit of the Spirit. What is the first manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth. Love. This is the fruit of the, the Spirit, the Spirit working within our lives. This kind of love is the mark of true conversion. John said it this way in 1 John 3:14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. How do you know that you've been saved? How do you know 
that you are a true child of God, that you've really passed from death to life, that you have the life of Christ within you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. If we don't have a love for the brethren, we must not be saved. If we don't have a love that rises above worldly love, the world can, as we've already seen, can demonstrate some level of love. But if we don't have love that's any better than, any greater than, any stronger than, any less selfish, any less hypocritical than the love that unconverted people show, what makes us think we've ever been converted? So the enablement to love. But secondly, the requirement of love, or the requirement to love. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth of the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Peter is saying, when you have been enabled to love as you are, have been enabled and are doing to some extent, do it now with greater effort, with a greater level of success. You have been enabled to love, but now it's up to you to exercise that ability to a far greater degree. And I see three aspects of this. First of all, the divine command. This is an imperative. This is a command. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. The first part of the text told us what God has done within us and what is the natural response of the spirit wrought person to the work of God within him. But now this tells us what we must do as a result of it. We must love. And now Peter shifts the word from phileo to agapao. It's a, a stronger word, a higher word. He shifts the emphasis from a natural affection, a natural spirit rod affection, to a love of the will. A love of understanding coupled with purpose. We love because we understand our responsibility to love. We love because we have a God-given, Bible-taught purpose for loving others. This kind of love desires the highest good for the loved one, even at the expense of self. Oh, you say, I wish you'd left that last one off, preacher. Just, just let it hang there at the beginning. Desiring the highest good for the loved object. But we don't understand it fully until we add that last one, even at the expense of self. And that's what's so difficult, isn't it? Because even as redeemed sons of God, regenerated and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're still too selfish, too self-centered. So we've got to work at this, and that's why it's a command. That which has been given to us, which what we are enabled to do by the work of the Spirit in, in our conversion needs to be developed because there are Adamic remnants that have got to be overcome. And if we don't work at them, they will not be overcome. This kind of love is commanded. In other words, it doesn't depend upon how we feel. You can't command a feeling, but you can command action. And this is a command. It really is the main point of the verse. It is the imperative. This is what Peter's getting to. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, 
Love one another fervently with a pure heart. This is the whole point of the text. It doesn't depend upon how we feel. It depends upon our level of obedience. We either obey or disobey. We must choose to behave in a loving way unconditionally. That means when it comes to other believers, there should be a welcoming embrace every time. That means when it comes to other believers that we are to to support our relationship with them with kind words and kind deeds. That means there should be and must be genuine forgiveness of our brethren. None of this, I forgive you, but... But what? I forgive you, but... Aren't you glad the Lord didn't say, I forgive you, but... I forgive you for Christ's sake. I forgive you because I love you. I forgive you because I'm learning to love more. I'm working at loving more. I forgive you because God has commanded me to forgive you. Divine command. This is neither a warm, fuzzy feeling, nor friendship around a coffee pot, though it might involve both, but it is a deliberate, active giving of ourselves to others. The divine command. But notice the defined object, one another. Christians are the focus of our love. Not that we neglect others. We know the Bible has things to say about loving others. Husbands, love your wives. And a high standard, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What a a convicting high standard is required of husbands in loving their wives. But wives, you are to love your husbands. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Evidently, they've learned how, or they can't teach others. But evidently, we need to be taught how, because it doesn't always come easily, does it? Don't shake your head too too enthusiastically. But uh, it doesn't always come easily, does it? But it's a command to love our husband and wife, to love our neighbor, whether saved or lost, to love our enemy. All of these are the commands of God. But here the emphasis is upon loving our brother in Christ. In other words, those whom God has chosen to place in the body of Christ have others beside them that God has chosen to place in the body of Christ. Now love them. Without regard to race, without regard to class, without regard to common interests, Love them. Why? Because God loves them. Love them. Why? Because God chose them. Oh, here's a practical application to the doctrine of election. We have learned, some with great difficulty, but we have learned to love that wonderful truth that if we are God's child, it's because we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Right. God chose me, to be his child. But God chose a lot of others to be his child, too. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, well, I didn't choose them. I know. You didn't choose you either. You responded to God's choice. Now respond to God's other choices. 
you know, there's something within us that that does naturally rankle against the doctrine of election. We don't we don't want things like that to be in the hands of God. We want that to be in our hands until we learn the true condition of our sin-sick soul and realize that we have no ability to respond except by God's electing grace. But until we understand these things, we kind of bristle at this. I want to make the choice. But we learn that God hasn't given us that privilege. The choice is in his hands. But somehow we think it's our privilege to choose who we will love, who we will embrace, who we will be kind to, who we will do loving deeds to, who we will include in our circle of friends and fellowship. We think that's our choice. We'll make that choice. God made that one too. Submit to it. Love because Christ loved them. Love because Christ chose them. Sometimes that's going to be tough. Nobody said it would be easy. Nobody said it would be easy. But the enablement is there. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know. Now that's another story. Yes, it is another story. Sometimes it's a very painful story. But it is how we demonstrate the love of Christ to us. It is how we demonstrate our obedience to the Word of God. Christianity cannot be lived in isolation. Christianity cannot be exercised in the wake of broken relationships. And the interesting thing is that this kind of love is one of the strongest attractions to the unconverted. We read it earlier in John 13, 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. This is a demonstration. This is a witness. By this all will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. And we have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. We have a responsibility to witness to others. We have a responsibility to pass out tracts. But... I want to tell you, sometimes we do more hindrance to what we're trying to do with our witness by the way we fail to love one another than if we just got our focus in the right priority and worked harder at our relationship to one another. It could have an amazing attraction to the lost. Might not have to work nearly so hard at... Tracking people down and shoving the gospel down their throats, which we've learned not to do, I hope, by the help and grace of God. But we need to work more on this loving business, don't we? In other words, when we love one another, we're also loving the world. When we love one another, we're also loving the world. Because we're providing that attraction it will cause the world to sit up and take notice. And so there's a divine command, and divine, a defined object rather, and there is the descriptive intensifier. I cover it quickly. We are to love one another fervently. That's a deeply, eagerly. That word means stretch or extend to the limit. 
It's used of stretching a violin string or stretching and straining a muscle in vigorous athletic contest. We're to love each other fervently to the limit like Christ did who loved us to the limit, who laid down his life for us. And with a pure heart, that is from the core of our being. This should be an expression of the true inner being of a Christian, one who has been changed by the work of God's Spirit. And this, my friends, is Peter's first specific application to his command to holiness. But as he called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What does that mean? Here's the first exhortation to tell us what that means. Since you have purified your soul in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. The first expression of holiness is love. Somehow we think the first expression of holiness is the do's and the don'ts. Well, this is a, this is a do and a don't. Don't act hypocritically. Don't act carnally toward one another. Do act lovingly. Do act graciously and kindly and Christ-like and giving in your relationship one to another. That's holiness. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Not that you've lost and your eyes dotted. That's not what's going to tell other people that you're my disciple. Not that you're a Baptist. Not that you're Reformed. Not that you've got all of this down. That's not what tells other people that you're my disciple. That you love one another fervently. Let me give you three statements from various commentaries that kind of summarize this text. If you have been enabled to love by the inward working of God's grace, focus your energies upon the practice of unconditional love of the brethren. Or here's another one. Once you have begun to grow in holiness so that you have a genuine affection for one another, make your love earnest, deep, and strong. Or this one. Love one another because your lives have been set apart by obedience to the truth, the purpose of which is to relate to others as God intended human beings to relate. Well, there's so many applications, but time has caught us short, so let us take these words to heart by God's help and grace, shall we pray? Oh, Lord, we confess our failure. We have not loved as we ought. We've fallen so far short. How grateful we are for your cleansing blood. How grateful we are that you can purify our souls when we acknowledge our sin and confess it and bring ourselves back under submission to your word. So, Lord, help us to acknowledge our sin, the sins of commission and the sins of omission in this area of love. And help us, Lord, to humbly place ourselves under the authority of your word and to bend ourselves toward obeying what you have taught us, that we might be purified that we might be Christ-like, that our lives might be characterized by love, and that others might know what great love the Lord has shown to us. We pray in Jesus' name.